0: I think so much of it is just a lack of clarity and planning. A lot of it is, and it all, I mean, geez, like it just depends on the size of the brand and where people are on their journeys and their process. But so I think, yeah, one of the common mistakes is a lack of clarity and just a really lack of like, where are we going? Where are we going in the next few years? And people get a lack of proactivity. So it's like ends up being this situation where you're just in response mode all the time.
1: This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe it better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, and better leadership for a better world. Join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com I'm your host Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On today's episode, we're speaking with Molly Gaines, strategic communications and engagement director at Kindship Group about the importance of authentic, relevant, and clear brand communications
0: great to be here with you. I'm Molly Gaines. I'm the director of strategic communications and engagement for the Kindship Group, which is a marketing agency that is really helping to grow purpose driven brands. And I've been doing this work for oh, a long time, more than 20, 25 years, specifically in the natural and organic food space for almost 20 years, and really focused the majority of that time. In the communication space, marketing communications, media relations, and just general strategic communications for many, many mission-driven brands that range from startups—people just who are entrepreneurs with an idea—to mid-level to you know bigger companies that have grown in this space who've been purchased now by other companies. So, I've really run the gamut, and it's just uh, and had some career, different career taken different paths at different times, but here I am. And just great to be here with you, Gage.
1: Awesome. Thanks for joining me. I'm excited to chat with you. We, I think we met last year, probably, but we've been working together quite a bit this year through the Kindship Group. I've just mm-hmm. enjoyed working with you. And I, I know there's a lot more to your background than I even know right now, especially because we, you know, recently yeah. posted up a lunch break episode uh, featuring Annie's Mac and Cheese, and you were talking about having uh, had a long history kind of of working in. with them yeah. or, or eating like, their oh, products. And I'm like, oh, okay, there's yeah. <laughs> yet another brand, yeah. uh, iconic brand <laughs> that you've helped with. So, I'm excited mm-hmm. to kind of break yeah. some of that down and share it with the community here. Before we dive too Excellent. deep though into current times, I always like to do a little bit of uh, backtracking on career arcs to see kind of where you started, how you got into it, etc. I noticed that you specifically studied journalism and communication. So, you must have had an idea. You wanted to do something like what you're doing now for a living. But how did you come to that conclusion? How did you decide to study journalism?
0: Yeah, I do feel so lucky because I'm so zeroed in now. A lot of my work focuses on writing and messaging and telling stories. And that's really been... um, you know, my passion since high school, if not before. So in high school, I joined the high school newspaper, um, had an interest in journalism. And then like many of us had a teacher who was really outstanding and instrumental, who was highly demanding, but just a fiery, awesome woman who I learned so much from named Linda Smoley, And she ran our high school newspaper in a very professional way. And we were uh, really expected to show up. With our best in all ways. And she really helped hone my skills as a writer. And it was just really fun to work on that high school newspaper. We churned it out once a month and it was quite good. And so that's where it really started. So I was an editor there. And through my work over time, over those, I think I started probably as a sophomore in high school through a senior, I ended up applying for some different college scholarships. I always wanted to go to the University of Iowa. I was from Iowa. And that's really the only place I looked. And they happen to have, to this day, a really wonderful award-winning, nationally award-winning college newspaper called The Daily Iowan. And I was one of two students in Iowa that year to win. Every year, they chose two to win a scholarship to work at that college newspaper. So the deal was I had to work there at least, I want to say, maybe it was 10 hours a week. And then they paid a good chunk of my tuition. And so along with that, I was able to get some other journalism scholarships that helped kind of pay my way through college. But in the back of my head, and so I did do that, and I worked you know, through the summers and quite a few hours at the college newspaper and really enjoyed that experience, got to tell some really interesting, unique stories, as I did even working for the high school paper, and always loved it. But in the back of my head, I always thought, ooh, I don't know, you know, this whole it was starting at the bottom of the barrel, working nights, all that journalists and uh, reporters really have to do. I'm not sure if that's my passion. No. I'm not sure as much as I love writing, if I want that, you know, newspaper lifestyle that you really have to be committed to because it's tough to be a reporter. I mean then and can't even imagine now. So I always in the back of my head had public relations and something in that path along that path that felt like okay I could merge some take some of these skills that I love with writing and telling stories and do that for brands or companies or nonprofits I always gravitated more towards nonprofit work And so that was in the back of my head always what I wanted to do. I wasn't very vocal about that because part of the goal with the scholarship I had was that they were going to be churning out journalists into the community, right? So, but I did have it in the back of my brain and took that track in college. I had journalism but took a few PR classes that were offered, but again, never really felt like I wanted to do that necessarily for a typical large corporation. I always wanted to do it to advance causes. And so that, yeah, so I ended up after graduation, you know, did look at a few newspapers and that was 1995. So it was a terrible time to be looking for a job, but I did in a few months land uh, actual, I, I did toy with taking some reporter jobs and took one oh, and wow. um, ended up. That's a whole nother tangent of a story. Ended up not moving out to where that newspaper was based and doing it for a range of reasons, luckily, because I think they were going to pay me maybe like $10 an hour or something, you know, in 1995. So I ended up at a Girl Scout Council working as the director of public relations and fund. I always have to say fund, not fund, fund development. So I did a little development work and PR work for them before then I launched into my next really big job, which was a gateway. So that was kind of my start. And at the heart of it was always wanting to ask a lot of Uh, questions and really loving the human interest story. And always from a young age, I've been very curious, always asked a lot of questions to the point where I probably drove people crazy, but it always, you know, made for some good reporting. And even today I use that in my work as I get to know different brands and companies.
1: That makes me feel like, I don't know if you've connected with her yet in the Evolve CPG community, but Sandra Ann Harris, she was actually episode number one of this uh, show, but but she also came from a bit of like a journalist background, ended up becoming an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. but just kind of re-dug back into her journalist roots with her, her book that she launched about living kind of plastic free. So anyway.
0: Oh wow, that sounds great. What you were saying yeah, about your story that,
1: like she had a similar thing. She was just like curious about like the the human experience and just asked a lot of questions.
0: Mhm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I do feel like a journalism degree really provides and sets you up just to really do a lot of different things whether that's go into law as a lot of people do or be a journalist or go into some sort of a communications degree but that you know, just really knowing how to write and structure sentences and do that really, really well and ask good, hard questions and edit yourself and do all of that at a high level, I think really sets you up for a lot of careers because writing is the foundation of so much of what we do and how people interpret what we do. so and that includes companies, how we project ourselves. so i I feel really grateful for that education I had, which was really great. And then plus, you know, you know, the overlay of that newspaper background just really gave me some really great experience to build from.
1: Awesome. And then you mentioned that you dove into Gateway. I know like most of your career has been around sustainability and food and other things like that. So I'm curious, how did this Gateway thing happen? That seems maybe it was intentional, maybe it was unintentional, maybe it was like working in (laughs) tech that made you realize you didn't oh, want to work in Oh, it was in tech. intentional.
0: <laughs> it was in, I loved it. I mean, it was such a great time. But to be honest with you, it was just honestly the most sensible company for the place that we were living at that time. Because my husband had gotten a job, we were in Iowa still. Again, it was you know not a hot job market by any stretch of the means. Nothing like today. Jobs were very, very tight. You know, I didn't really come from a family that was really well networked. I didn't have just, I don't think there were quite the networking and awareness around that outside your family, either through college. And so you just kind of went out there and said, here's my resume. I mean, what could I do? So we stayed, you know, a little closer to home, even though we always had our eyes set. You know, we live now in Denver out West. It felt just like too much financially and otherwise with no network to build from to just go try to start a career. Out here. So we stuck a little closer to home, which was Iowa. And my husband had gotten a job in Sioux City and he got a really good job there. And so that's where we were going. And there weren't a lot of companies to work for. And the big one was Gateway, which was really funny. It's like Gateway, you know, started by Ted Waite in the, I don't even know exactly when they started, probably late 80s. And, you know, he started with maybe a $10,000 loan from his grandpa in the garage, that kind of a story. And it ended up being you know at that time one of the top computer companies and hardware companies in the country and it was definitely a quirky place to work mm-hmm. and had an endearing quality about it because of those cow boxes <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the main those. thing they I
1: remember hard- about Gateway is the cow branding, yeah.
0: <laughs> And they used all of their own employees in their commercials so i was in like their what? ads and different people would be in really? commercials oh. yeah so they used all their own talent we and, have to dig some you know, of those up and put it, it in the doing... show link
1: notes or something
0: <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah uh, it's pretty entertaining let me tell you but it was so such an incredible time to be part of that kind of dot com i guess rise really and the funny thing about it, I look back at how sometimes you look back and say, "How did I end up where I am? And how have I gotten the jobs that I? And how have I, you know, landed those? And this one, I literally went to the PRSA, so that was the Public Relations Society of America, their handbook, and looked at who's in Sioux City." And went through and saw there was a woman named Willow who worked at Gateway and she was in the PR department. And I called Willow just randomly on the phone. I said, Hi, my name's Molly, you know, Gaines, and I'm just moving to Sioux City and I have this PR background. And do you happen to know of any jobs that are, well, you know, in the nice. PR department at Gateway? And she was like, Who are you? But she was awesome. And it just so happened that she was leaving. She was leaving. I think it was her position for a new position in the PR department. She's like, you know, would you want to come in? I could probably get you an interview. And so that's how that worked out. I just, and I remember how nervous I was to make that phone call. And it was really the first time that I had done something totally on my own without, you know, connecting with someone who had known me before in a community. So I got in there and started working on public relations for their laptop line of computers. Before, Back then we called them portables, their portable <laughs> yeah. computer line. And that pretty much consisted of just pitching new product all the time to New York and San Francisco tech media. So I was specifically doing trade public relations work. Those publications back then were called, you know, Computer World and PC Week and PC World and these different editors that would just write reviews of, you know, technology all day long, CNET, all of the ZNET And so then I would go to all the trade shows. And so all of a sudden I was kind of launched into this big time PR career where I got to travel. I was, you know, in my early twenties to New York city and to San Francisco. And even though, you know, I hadn't done that kind of work before. And so I did got to, we'd rent out all of these huge, like top floor suites on, in these gorgeous hotels in New York and invite media in to come see our product. And they would actually show up because, you know, they probably thought we were just crazy. Gateway yeah. people were just, you know, so quirky. They were expecting everyone
1: to be wearing cow costumes company or something. In yeah. Iowa?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was a trip. It was such a, a great experience for me. And it was one of those companies that definitely sold itself. So, you know, the products at that time were very popular. People loved Gateway products. And so it wasn't Really that hard to get coverage for them, which was probably a blessing for me in that first in the because I had so much to learn going into the tech world and so also I would work a lot with on the technology side with the you know the engineers to learn about the technology and worked a lot with marketing about around pricing and all those things and so really was fun to immerse myself in a very a fortune five hundred company where I got to learn. All aspects of it. Now, the disadvantage to coming into my career like that was not... I always say to people who are coming into PR now, work at an agency. Start your career off at an agency. Because when you do it backwards, it's a little more difficult. But on the flip side, I certainly got a lot of great understanding about how companies work and all of the different aspects of a company versus if you started an agency, you're more on the outside of that. And it's really impossible to ever fully immerse yourself in a company. So did you ask me though, why? Yeah.
1: Well, why do you feel like it's better to start at an agency?
0: Yeah, because you just get... You're surrounded by everyone doing exactly what you do. And you also have everyone around you kind of gets it. And so, and also everyone around you, I suppose it depends on the agency where you work. But certainly my experience later at Haberman was that these people, the people you're surrounded with, the people I worked with were just so incredible at what they did. So there was so much mentoring and learning going on where at Gateway... I was a little bit, not thrown to the wolves, but I would say there wasn't as much expertise and probably because we were in Iowa and not in New York city or San Francisco in particular, where all that tech stuff is happening. And so, you know, we were a little amateur. (laughs) Yeah. And so I just learned a lot about everything, but definitely working my next job And Haberman really took everything to the next level in terms of my learning about the craft of of what I did and media relations in particular at that time. And then more generally as the work evolved, integrated marketing and marketing communications.
1: That makes sense. I imagine there could be a pro and con list of, you know, starting in-house versus starting in an agency. The the one pro would be you're not being trained by a bunch of people who are teaching, you like, well, this is the way it's always been done. So just do it this way. Because you're just kind of making it up on the fly and trying to figure it out, right? But on the flip side, it's exactly the same reason. Like you're not learning the best practices. You're just kind of trying to figure it out. So, but it's probably good for people to have both experiences early in their career, I imagine.
0: I think so. And I do think having worked at a company gave me a lot more empathy for people who work in companies and what they are working for and what they're working against internally and what their own challenges are so that when I had clients, I could put myself in their shoes a little easier, which is really important. But yeah, Gateway was a wild ride, a wild time. I eventually got to work on what was called the Your Wear program, which was the first time technology was really combined with software and training um, for people around different tasks. So for example, photography. So then we paired up in a package a camera you could buy and you would get training. Back then were called Gateway Country Stores, very similar similar to Apple Stores, but they provided where you could actually walk into a store and see the technology. So this was before Apple Stores came out. Gateway actually had a lot of very progressive things that never quite they couldn't quite execute as well as Apple obviously did. But so I got to lead that You're where I was the marketing manager for that too. So at that point, I kind of had transitioned to, from public relations to more of a marketing role oh,
1: interesting. and
0: got some really interesting experience launching that program. And then eventually I was invited. So Gateway really started to abandon as far as their corporate functions, took them out of the... Iowa, from Sioux City, Iowa, or South Dakota is eventually, they're right on the border, but they were in Sioux City, Iowa, North North Sioux City, South Dakota, and took all that to San Diego in Irvine because Ted Waite had decided and some of the other executives they would rather live there, I think, which Uh, made sense, (laughs) frankly. And so, but so they took all the functions out of Iowa and moved them all there. So I was invited to run the Gateway Country Stores out there. And since they only lasted a few more years, I was glad actually that I, I didn't do that. But it was a wild time. And during that time, I actually got my, it's funny with Zoom now, you know, I actually participated in a very early version of Zoom for my master's degree in communications. The time I was at Gateway, I worked on my master's in communications, which was all done through this network called the Iowa Communications. It was called ICANN, Iowa Communications Something Network. And basically, we sat in a room in satellite places and people around Iowa were part of this program. And we would see the professor up on the screen. And when we pushed a button, it would scan go to us and they would see us. And that's how we did the whole entire program. And it was very progressive at that time. And I thought of that recently as I was um, thinking through some of these parts of my past and thinking how that was a very early progressive version, almost, of Zoom. And yeah. So those were the early years in my 20s and just really, or my early 20s, and just uh, really grateful to have been part of that whole dot-com kind of rise. Yeah. And so it was a blast. Well, then
1: after that, you kind of joined the natural product industry it, rise totally, as well, because you've been kind of working in that field for a couple of decades. Yeah. So you've you've seen it go from the scrappy a bunch of hippies at conferences to a bunch of suits (laughs) and investors and whatever. You've seen that journey, but how did you go from this kind of gateway Mm -hmm. Iowa experience to, I think Haberman was in Minnesota, right? So how did that all- Haberman's
0: in Minneapolis. So we ended up, my husband and I ended up moving to Minneapolis again, kind of for his job and things at Gateway, as I talked about, we decided- you know, not to move to California, even though I had that opportunity. So we it was must have been like 1999 or 2000, we moved to Minneapolis. And basically, shortly thereafter, I had a little stint at another technology company there that ended up going bust. But I was only there about six months and someone that I met there introduced me to Fred Haberman, who he and his wife, Sarah started Haberman, which is an awesome agency today in Minneapolis that does a lot of work in this space. But at that time, they weren't doing any work in this space when I joined. And when Fred initially called or when I had originally connected with him for an interview, one of his first questions to me was, what are you passionate about, Molly? Like, what do you want to do? And I was like, what do you mean? What am I passionate about? Why would that's you even ask me? Question. Yeah. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that question in my life, and I'm 24 years old. What? I didn't. I was so caught off guard. I didn't even know. What, he's like, well, I like to, you know, think about what people are passionate about, and then you know, pair that with what you might want to work on. I was like, what? Oh, wow. That was just such a revel, like a revelatory moment. I was just like, whoa, that's really interesting. I don't even know. I don't know how to answer this. But anyway, so I started working there and did get to work on some things I was passionate about and some things I wasn't so passionate about. But that was okay, because that's just the way it works at an agency. You don't get to do everything you love. But after a couple of years, Fred and I both had this interest and just started developing an interest in organic food more. Again, this was the, you know, 2000, 2001, and just started eating more that way. And some of that had come, I had made that transition from more of a conventional diet to eating more natural, organic and and homegrown foods based on a friendship that I really developed in Sioux City. And that woman had originally lived in Boulder and grew up on a macrobiotic diet and had, (laughs) yeah. And she grew a lot of her own food. She, She really inspired me to think about how I was eating. And so that was happening and same was happening for Fred. And so we knew about Organic Valley, of course, and he had some sort of a connection to Organic Valley, that who then connected him to Teresa Marquez, who, of course, for years was their head of marketing. And so Fred used to joke that he actually stalked Teresa for quite a while. And so he basically said, can we please do a project with you? Can we please do a project with you? And this went on. And finally, one day, she's like, okay, I have a project for you. And and it was really writing and pitching farmer profiles, organic farmer profiles. And so I got to start doing that work because I was had this personal passion and interest in it. And so that's kind of how it started. So we started working with Organic Valley, and that was in their earlier years, and had success for them. We started getting some results and just really hit it off with Teresa and and their team, and so got to continue that work. And of course, you know how that works. Once you work with one company in the space, and you're doing good work, someone else finds out about it, and so you start to get other work in that space. So in time, you know, I started to lead the whole sustainability practice because it was something I was personally so passionate about. and I was getting a lot of experience in, did work for the National Co-op Grocers Association, did a lot of work for the wonderful network of natural food co-ops that are in the Twin Cities. There are at least, I want to say there are 15 natural food co-ops there. They have a really unique cooperative food scene. Cooperatives in general in Minnesota are big, but so that was really wonderful. And then- We got to work for Frontier, you know, the spices and or acacia, the essential oils. And we were working for Annie's Homegrown, which was just fantastic. Actually, one of the women who worked at Annie's used to work at Haberman. So that's how we ended up getting connected to them. And so you know, I worked with Annie's for a number of years before they were purchased by General Mills. And we got to work with Lundberg Family of Farms. And I think Haberman still works with them and some of these other brands. So it just built from there. And I got to really just like you said, see the growth of this industry. And it was just a blast to be a part of it. And Certainly, it it has changed. When I started in it, no one had been purchased that I'm aware of by anyone. Like everyone was just starting in this space, but really working, you know, and we worked with Organic Trade Association, of course, and they were, I think, a, a client for a period of time just to really build this, you know, consumer movement for organics and really that too. I don't know when the USDA certified organic label started coming out, but it wasn't that much before I started in this space. And so, Really just working with these brands to establish the trust, to establish the connection, to really help grow them and in turn really grow the organic and natural food industry. And so just felt all along, just kept drawing me deeper into this work and this lifestyle. And I really just had such an appreciation too for the. People who were pushing these brands forward, you know, the head, the CEO, and the farmers of Organic Valley, and these different, um, the farmers of Lundberg Family of Farms, and the people who were so passionate about Annie's and Annie herself, who started, you know, Annie's Homegrown. I got to visit her farm, and I think it was Connecticut, and meet her. And so, just a really wonderful time. And again, always, you know, using media relations and public relations work to help advance these stories.
1: Yeah, and just. In case some of the listeners aren't super familiar with like what somebody in public relations does, what are some examples of some of the ways you were helping those companies?
0: Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work that we were doing at that time, because of course, this was pre, it wasn't pre, I mean, some of the social media was happening, especially Facebook, but certainly not Instagram or any of these other tools or platforms. A lot of our work was centered around media relations. So a lot of the public relations, I guess a lot of even today, you could say it's, you know, anything for us in the earned space. So things, different ways of promoting a brand that aren't being paid for, but really focus in more on helping in ways that don't cost money to help build the brand and tell the story. And there is an argument to be made that a lot of that work can help build a more authentic story and brand that's more trusted. If someone else, a third party is saying, oh, you know, Gage Mitchell is awesome and Modern Species is just this fantastic agency versus you've paid for a full page ad that says how great you are. So it's that idea. But a lot of the work that we were doing at Haberman and a lot of what I've done is cause related. Right. So creating cause related program, we did some work at one time for Earth Justice, and it was to really promote wild salmon. And so it's like, why and help, you know, engage people around this idea of protecting wild salmon. What's the best way to protect wild salmon? Well, to eat it and to send letters to their congressmen. And so that verges a little more into public affairs. But for example, Annie's Homegrown, we did a campaign and it was to try to engage parents and kids to plant something, just plant one thing. And they had a website built around it. So it was the idea was to plant a million plants in a year and You know, just in with Organic Valley, so much of it was a lot of issues based. So a lot of promoting the whole idea of organic farming and certainly getting organic farmers, putting them first and telling their stories and their priorities and sharing just who they are and helping Consumers connect with the brand through them and the telling of those stories in different, in particular media outlets at that time. Now it's certainly expanded a lot, right? We can't just the media universe has shrunk and it's more challenging to break through there and it's not people aren't reading you know media certainly printed media as much and so it's like okay now we need to look online and what about influencers and all of that so it continues to change and evolve but the heart of it all it still comes back to the story and it comes back to being really clear on who we are and what we have to offer and why we're doing it and 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 being really clear with the messaging around that so a lot of my work too then and today is around crafting those those messages, which I like to call just the stories of an organization.
1: That's right, I was just thinking about like, especially with your background in journalism, how weird it must have been as this whole trend towards social media and influencers started popping up to where you, you were pitching people who had these like backgrounds in journalism and trying to find the truth and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden now you're like pitching teenagers who just happen to have an Instagram account that has a big following, but like, don't have any sort of code I of ethics know. or or history or education or yeah. background in that thing. And just, now you got to yeah. go out and pitch to those kind of I people. Know. It's probably kind of weird for someone that came from a journalism background.
0: It is weird. There's definitely, yeah. I can't say it's a little unsettling. I have to be honest, you know. As someone who has a lot of problems with social media, I have two teenagers, tweens. I have a 12 and a 14 year old, and not that they've in particular had problems with social media, but you know, it's just, it's such an integral part of life today, but I can't, and there's certainly a lot of good that's come out of it. Right. But there's a lot that is not good and a lot of challenges, and to your point, a lot of people out there talking a lot about things as experts, and it's like, what qualifies you as an expert? And so certainly it's, you know, as someone who's been doing this, been in this space for a long time, and to your point with the journalism background, and I think it's really important for us to, when people talk, to know what they're talking about, and not just be trying to convince people and influence on things that they really don't have the background to be doing that, but that's where we are. So I do think it'll be interesting to see how all that changes and evolves. I'd like to think in time, we'll get a little more back to center and people will, I mean, I know my kids, my son in particular is very leery of where information comes from. So I think that as PR people, even for lighter, you know, when we're not doing work related to, for example, voting rights, you know, even on organic food, I mean, we're talking climate change here. It's like, it's really important for us to be influencing in ways that are ethical and where we're really telling the truth. I think PR, you know, a lot of times, oh that was just PR, you know, through the years, it just be like, Ugh, I can't stand it when people say that like oh it's just PR. It's like, ah, oh, really, I mean, public relations should be relating to stakeholders in a way that's authentic and truthful and yes i mean of course there's going to be some influence yeah, because there right? is a
1: bit of a stigma behind yeah. pr that it's all about spin and i think that's there's like proactive pr where you're going out and trying to tell stories and connect with stakeholders like you're talking about but probably the reason pr gets a bit of that mm-hmm. reputation is because of the reactive pr where you're putting out fires and trying to like spin negative things to downplay it or to like, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. that is, a damage control kind of side of PR. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've done much of that damage control side, but I I do wonder if that's kind of where the not so good part of the reputation
0: comes from. Oh, 100%. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there's a whole history around it, right? I mean, you can see what's happening now politically and with the rise of the slide of democracy and the rise of authoritarianism i mean so much of that has to do with propaganda and how stories are spun look at what happened you know with the elections it's like the story that this is not to go totally political here, but you know, that this was all a fraud, that there's all this voting fraud. There were like 450 some people or counts that didn't count of votes. Like, I mean, whatever the number was, it's like the way this story has been. And no matter whatever side you're on, you will have a very different, you know, viewpoint on that, but it's powerful. Stories have a lot of power. And I think as PR people, it's really important to and that's why I think the background matters, and that's why I think having a journalism background because I really feel like people who are trained in journalism from reputable schools are really trained to be balanced, to really look for the story, to find the truth, and that is important in our work as PR people because now more than ever. Truth does matter and it's become so subjective, but it really shouldn't be. And so, when we're working for companies and on behalf of companies telling their story, of course, we're going to be telling the positive, good stuff. We're not going to be always wanting to dig in and proactively be telling the dirt in a company, but you know, there's definitely a balance. And I think transparency. And especially as we all know in this industry, in the organic and natural food industry, is becoming more and more important. And it's something that people who are buying products in this space demand, and they're going to be demanding it more. They want to know how companies operate, they want to know who companies are siding with, where they're sourcing their products. So, all of this, and the more you're on the side of doing your best and having that positive intention in across how you're working as a business, the more successful your, you know, public relation efforts will be. I mean, look at Patagonia. It's like, they're perfect. It's hard to just, they're always striving. And and that whole, like, you know, maybe not, we're not going to always be perfect, but we're going to strive to be, that's where we're going to strive. So it's like just continuing, continual improvement and showing that. And I think people will really Get on board with that and not expect perfection if you are being transparent and sharing just why, how we're trying to improve. And if we can't prove here, here's why. I mean, plastics with packaging is a perfect example of that. So, anyway, a little bit of a tangent, but, and I haven't done a lot of crisis communications because I don't like it. I don't really like to be in that space. It's not my, <laughs> I yeah. think some PR people really enjoy that. You don't want to have work. to be
1: on call 24 <laughs> 7.
0: No. No, no. That's why I got into PR and not journalism <laughs> or reporting work. But yeah.
1: Yeah. I think to your point on like transparency and stuff, though, I feel like in the old days, so to speak, brands did try to always look like they were these perfect entities that could never fail. And it was you hid all the bad that's news point. and covered mm-hmm. up any really bad news as best you can pay people off or whatever. So the right. story doesn't hit the news. And then yeah. you just try to like tell these more positive stories, and it. I think the world started to see some of that as like, it, maybe at first of greenwashing, and then maybe there's impact washing or social responsibility washing or whatever, where oh, where yeah. people are, telling these socially responsible stories to cover up the fact that they're really horrible with all their employees or whatever, you know. And it starts to become this exactly. area where consumers aren't trusting brands as much and maybe not trusting Mm -hmm. some of the media too, because they're taking place in that. And then going to Mm -hmm. other places like social media, where theoretically you were just going to get like an unspun version because it's just a consumer reporting or whatever, instead of somebody being paid to do it. But (laughs) like you said, it's all becomes this big mush to where now nobody knows who they can trust and they're putting trust in the wrong places. But the reason I'm going off on this tangent is you talked about like transparency and And like Patagonia or other brands who are saying like, no, we're not perfect, but we're aiming to improve. And I think there's something powerful Mm -hmm. about that vulnerability that is Mm -hmm. allowing consumers to trust brands again. Because everybody knows no company, no individual is perfect, right? That's just impossible standard. So, if this brand is willing to admit that they have some flaws, but they're working on them, I'm going to trust everything they say a little bit more because at least they're being honest about that. Whereas if a brand is, you know, I know they've got some stuff going on behind the scenes, but they don't ever talk about it. I don't trust them anymore because I don't know what else they're hiding, right? So I think it's kind of a powerful movement towards transparency and vulnerability and authenticity. And it is
0: really different. Yeah. And to your point, I mean, it's a new phenomenon, right? It's not something that we've seen through the years by companies. It's either kind of all the good stuff or nothing at all. So that vulnerability, and of course, that's, you know, thank you, Brené Brown, and just on a relationship level, how much that's come out on just on a personal kind of development level, and then now how that extends to companies and being rewarded for being vulnerable and speaking truth. And I think we're going to continue to see people, especially who are in this space of sustainability, consumers in this space gravitate towards those brands and progress, not perfection, and just sharing the journey along the way and being really open to feedback and explaining kind of what you're doing along the way. And that's hard. It takes a lot of courage, but I think that we're going to see more and more of that in the future for sure, and we're going to see companies rewarded for, for doing that. I think it'll create, to your point, gauge just more brand loyalty, yeah. And we among companies that are willing to share in that it's way, it's an
1: interesting subject. I think we in the community need to do more talking on this idea of brand vulnerability and, and how you do it right. And I, we had yeah, a I meeting in the Evolve CPG community where we posted up some notes in the community if anyone wants to go take a look at. at community.evolvecpg.com where we had a few people in marketing talking about what it looks like to try to be vulnerable and some best practices but but mm-hmm. i think that's something we should kind of bring mm-hmm. up again and again maybe have another one of those meetings yeah with that yeah. said let's I love it. jump forward a little bit to present day because in the intro you know we mentioned yeah. kindship group your work there which for full transparency i'm also part of the kindship group through my agency modern species mm-hmm. so we get to work together there but Let's tell the listeners a little bit about what you're doing in present day through the kindship group.
0: Yeah. So through the kindship group, I mean, really where I'm spending so much of my time and I've worked with you, Gage, a lot on are helping companies get really clear, new brands and brands that have been around for a while, on how they're telling their story and telling every aspect of their story. And so really more specifically, that means having a message about pretty much every single thing you do. That you offer. So I'm spending a lot of my time on strategic, pretty, you know, all encompassing strategic communication messaging documents that articulate a company's vision. What are we about? What are our values? What do we do? Who are our founders? What have our founders done? What are our products? What are our offerings? All of these things that almost are becoming as one of our clients recently said she's like, "I am so excited to make this part of our brand guide. We'll have our like visual identity, and then here are the words. This is how we talk about ourselves and so I thought that was really brilliant. I actually hadn't thought of that myself, but I love that idea of having a messaging document, a living and breathing one that changes that everyone knows. This is how we talk about ourselves. And so there aren't you know surprises that we do know how we're going to address more thorny subjects. For example, we are not able yet to move beyond plastic packaging. We know consumers in this sustainability space don't want all this plastic packaging, but the reality is the compostable isn't Really, it drives up the cost of prod. I'm just using an example, right? It drives up the cost of the product. Or are they really willing to pay that much more? You know, not everybody has access to industrial composting, and it, so it has to be a backyard compostable package, all these things. So, making sure that we have messages around some of these thorny areas as well. So, I'm spending a lot of my time today, and I absolutely love it. So, that process is just really so much fun for me because it's like putting together a puzzle. It's a creative process, but it also is not creative content, which is not my creative writing is not my thing because of my journalism background. It's more here than nuts and bolts of how we, how we do things as a company and just getting everyone aligned behind that. And so this is something I've done forever, but I think it's taken the messaging documents I've been creating are really on a next level um, right now, which are really fun. And I think important. And so That's been great. And then, you know, just helping people, what are we going to be communicating? Like, what are we going to be doing in our marketing communications program? What are all the activities? What are the strategies? Why are we doing it? What are the objectives and goals? So just creating those plans often for a year, sometimes two years. I recently put together a strategic plan for an actual organization that outlined everything that organization would be doing organization-wide, but most of what I'm doing are marketing communication-specific plans and looking at how's everything going to come together and work as a well-oiled machine to really advance what we want to do here with our brand. So that's really where I'm spending the bulk of my time these days is on that strategy work but that said i still you know get my hands in with the woman who does mary rachel who does kindships public relations all the actual pitching the media pitching work and also earned influencers so not all of the brands that we work with most of them can't afford big influencer budgets and so who are those influencers that are willing to do an exchange of product for you know some coverage or to talk about us a little bit and working with those folks that are usually smaller scale influencers, but hopefully can build to something bigger over time. And so that's really where I'm spending a lot of my time these days, and just really, really, really enjoying it, feel very passionate about it, excited to do the work. And yeah, and it was it's fun to come back to it. We didn't talk a lot about it and we don't need to because we don't have a whole lot of time left, but just I did take that break for a few years doing something totally different with the Urban Farm Hands, a company I started where I was doing backyard gardening for people, going in, setting up customized raised beds, planting them with organic produce and flowers. And it was such a nice, like refreshing pivot where it was still in this space at really helping people grow their own food, which to me is one of the most important skills that all of us can develop and have and helping people feel really proud about having a garden in their backyard that they could nourish their families with. And so that was really just a fun pivot for five years. And so now I feel like I had almost a break from the work where I was still working on my own brand and doing that. But I came back where some people who are, you know, who've been doing it for a while, like I have, are just fried. They're just like, because working too for an agency can just be, it's hard. It's hard work. It's tiring. It's, you know, it's just like you can get, there's a high burnout rate. So it's almost, I had a little sabbatical. So now I feel like I'm so refreshed. I'm a way better PR and uh, marketing communications strategist than I was a number of years ago as a result of starting my own business and then coming back with new fresh eyes yet never having walked away from it completely. So I do feel like I'm almost in that like second or third phase of my work where I'm in I'm doing and building off of what I've done for many years but coming at it with kind of fresh new energy and I love working with new people like you Gage and other people on the team and getting to know just a whole new set of faces and people who who bring so much fresh energy and different skills to the table? So it's just been a blast, and I, I love it. Yeah, that I love is the work.
1: The best part about being in a collaborative or, or just working collaboratively is that you so drastically, exponentially expand all the different perspectives, backgrounds, and expertise and insights wow. from all these people coming from different angles. And uh, so to pull all that together mm-hmm. is great. And in comparison to like a big agency who has a lot of people. Working internally, I think the collaborative model is nice because then you also don't have to force your clients into using every single department that you have or whatever to justify the cost. So, like working collaboratively, Mm -hmm. clients can get just the piece that they need, but with the shared knowledge that exists within that web of professionals. Right. So, it's a really powerful kind of format to be serving people in really powerful ways, but without you know, crazy giant international agency budgets or something.
0: Totally. There's a lot of integrity in this model. I love it.
1: Yeah. So, and I'm glad you mentioned the urban farmhands. I was going to hop over it in our agenda just for sake of time, but I'm glad you mentioned it because I think it will be relevant uh, with this next question, which is, so with all of your experience through PR, strategic communications, and so on and so forth, what are some of the common struggles that you see brands making so that you can give them some like hot tips on either how they're telling their story more authentically or cutting through their clutter in a very crowded market, etc. Like what are some of the common things that you mistakes you see brands happening that they could avoid with a little bit of strategic communication?
0: Mm-hmm. I think so much of it is just a lack of clarity and planning. A lot of it is and it all I mean geez, like. It just depends on the size of the brand and where people are on their journeys and their process. But so I think, yeah, one of the common mistakes is a lack of clarity and just a really lack of like, where are we going? Where are we going in the next few years? And people get a lack of proactivity. So it's like ends up being this situation where you're just in response mode all the time. And it's really easy to put communications and particularly, you know, marketing communications and public relations in particular more on the back burner versus being proactive and out there all the time with here's really how we're presenting ourselves and our story and the issues that we're going to make sure we're tackling and communicating about all the time. So I actually, I have a bit of an acronym I came up with, which might not be great, but some words. And I think you could take each of these words and think about the opposite of them would be where the mistake can lie. So the acronym is ARC, So, but with two A's and two C's. And if you think about ARC, you know it can be the trajectory of an organization, or it can be when... I had to look this up because I didn't know what another definition is, is when like a welder is working and the arc is that point where the fire where it starts firing, right? So the first A would be around authenticity. So that idea of really being authentic and true to your own organizational values and with your story, that vulnerability we were talking about. And I feel like each of these I could go on for, but we don't have all that time for it, so I won't. But so then the the opposite of that would be not being authentic, right? So really being authentic. The second A, and this is newer, This is newer for brands, but being advocates, advocacy work, this is going to be huge in the future. We saw it really come to life or to light around George Floyd. We're seeing it with voter rights. We're seeing it related to, you know, certainly social justice. And we're seeing it with organic and natural food companies, particularly organic food companies around climate change. And so what are the issues that I'm going to really stand behind as an organization and advocate for? not just say I stand behind this, but what am I going to authentically do to help push this forward and say, take a stand on it? And it needs to make sense for the organization, right? So like voting rights might not make sense for farmer direct organic, but certainly climate change on some level does and soil regeneration. So what do I care about? And what am I going to advocate for as a brand? And again, this is really, I think the future. And I think it's what our customers are going to want to see. I want to see it. When I align with a brand, I want to know what this brand stands for. And so that's another one. So authenticity, advocacy, are relevancy. How am I relevant? So when brands become, to your point, what are the mistakes? Irrelevant. Something I'm doing is not relevant anymore. I'm spending a lot of time to me, Facebook's becoming, I mean, it's still a deal, right? But like, I don't know if Facebook's going to be the future. So I'm just using that as an example. What are the relevant platforms? Instagram seems really, it's still part of Facebook, I know. But like, you know, what's relevant? What is relevant to the people I'm targeting, my customers? What's relevant to them? What do they care about? We know that, pla- again, I keep going back to plastics, but you know, that's like, I know that's important to them. Plant-based foods are important to them. So what's relevant and how does my brand align with that? And then how are we staying relevant internally with what we're learning, with what we're projecting? So authenticity, advocacy, relevancy, two Cs, one clarity. So getting really clear. There's so much muddiness in organizations. It's like, what? I don't understand what you're doing. I don't understand what you're trying to say. I don't understand your product line. No, we have to be really clear. And if we're not let's figure it out. That's problem solving, right? Let's figure out the muddy places and let's put language around it. Let's put imagery, let's put the meat on the bones to make it, let's give it the structure so that we don't have that lack of clarity because that's just a, that's a killer. So we've got to be really clear. And then the final C I would say is connection. All of us are looking for more connection. We've got many of us feel less connected to our neighbors, less connected to our friends and family less connected in general to the world because we've either, it could be COVID, it could be, we can't stand listening to the news anymore. It's depressing. It could be, you know, we're doing this too much. And so we're not like connecting with the world around us. So it's like, how do we, as a brand, how do we connect? Because connection and relationships we know creates more intimacy. So how am I creating more intimacy with my customers? By connecting. How do I connect more? all those things. I'm authentic. I'm relevant. I'm clear. I'm advocating for things that they care about too. So really, I think in general, it comes down to connection and what are all the different ways I can do that. The tools are going to keep changing. The social platforms are going to keep changing, but we've got to keep staying on the front end of figuring out ways to connect on emotionally resonant ways that help people really understand our brand and want to be with us on our journey. So that's That's awesome.
1: I'm a bit of a framework nerd. So I really love that you kind of broke that into a kind of acronym framework that people can work with. And maybe we do a deeper dive in the evolved CPG community at some point or something like that, since I imagine you could (laughs) wax and wane on each of those for an hour or more. So that's awesome. Great advice for sure. One last thing to finish this off too is Uh, We touched on this a little bit already, I think. So maybe it's just kind of like putting a pin in it. But what do you feel like the future of communications looks like? And I guess, you know, obviously, let's be specific for like the brand kind of mission driven, purpose driven, kind of natural organic product, kind of that kind of space. Mm -hmm.
0: So the future, again, I think it is going to be around this. We have so many more tools today to talk more directly to our customers. And to provide them with an experience related to our brand that is multidimensional. You know, it could be in person. And wow, have we ever developed our ways of connecting through technology? Especially COVID has really forced that. And so just really this multidimensional level of connection in a way that's more personal than ever before. So obviously that, I mean, 20 years ago, 25 years ago when I started, there were barely even customized emails, you know? And so I just think that level of one-on-one personal connection with our customer bases are gonna be more of the future of where we go and meeting people where they are. So figuring out like Molly likes to really be on Instagram And she actually still really likes to receive direct mail. And so I'm going to know so much about, you know, for better or for worse. But as a brand, I'm going to know a lot about how this person wants to be talked to. And so this is going to just keep getting more and more sophisticated, deeper and deeper. And we're going to keep running and butting up a course against privacy issues and all of these things. But I think that the more that someone like me wants to connect with a sustainable brand and that brand knows where to meet me, that's just going to be a magic formula. And I think that that's really, conti- I th- I don't think that's going away. I think that that will continue to be the future. Yeah, And
1: I know there's a lot of people worried about privacy issues and there's really good concerns around that, but that is the positive side of all these platforms knowing everything about you is for example, if a brand really wanted to oh, reach yeah. me, you know, eventually they'll probably know my dietary preferences, they'll know my shirt size. If they want to yes. send me some swag, they'll they'll right. probably have like all right. my different addresses to be able to send me stuff as a like a promo piece. And there's just so many layers of kind of getting to know who you're trying to talk to that will continue to be developed over time. And it's just about trying to find the right kind of ethical ways of doing that to make people's life experiences better totally. instead of hitting me with a bunch of irrelevant right. ads, which is difficult when I'm in the design field. Yeah. I'm constantly researching stuff for clients. So, I get all these ads that are like <laughs> completely oh, irrelevant for me. Like we've done work Weird with like breastfeeding one. advocacy yeah. and it's like I'm getting all these things about pregnancy or <laughs> hospitals like, no, no. or, you know, you formula and I'm you. like, come on. Oh, so <laughs> but funny. like, yeah. so eventually like yeah. those yeah. algorithms will realize, oh, he's browsing for work or something. I don't know. Maybe not. But but like it's it's great and that mm, they maybe, can deliver maybe. you more relevant stuff. But it's also scary in that, you know, oh crap, they're tracking me everywhere I go or, you know, they do know exactly what's going on and they're going to use that information against me. But you're right. I think that Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. not going to go away per se anytime soon. I think there's going to be more and more targeted ways, especially with like geolocation and a bunch of other stuff like that, that are still somewhat Mm -hmm. untapped. Like I've heard Mm -hmm. people talk about the how you could Mm -hmm. technically with existing technology know that I happen to be driving buy a grocery store at that moment and have a text message pop up that says, Hey, $5 off something at this place or, you know, a restaurant or something like that. So there's just so many different ways we could be deepening connections with our users, our community, our consumers, et cetera, but we got to find the right ways to do it. Maybe using your arc formula, it's got to be (laughs) clear.
0: Maybe. Yeah. Exactly. All of those things. Yeah. I mean, some of it's scary. It's like, because we do end up in a bit of an echo chamber, right? Which is what's happening politically right now. We end up getting fed all of the information we want, and they know that we want to hear that people know we want. Right. But I still think I prefer receiving information that's more customized towards what I like. So it's like finding what will that balance be is going to be really, really fascinating because I do think from the social platform standpoint, they're going to be forced. Some of these algorithms, they're already like, you just can't keep, (laughs) I mean, you can keep feeding people what they want, but when it comes to information, we don't want to keep becoming a more polarized country. So it's like, what are all those balances? And I do think that you know we as brands and organizations we have to just really keep our eye on the ethical the moral compass around that and always be asking ourselves and making sure we're staying kind of on a good side of that from a privacy and
1: yeah it's funny because i feel like a lot of the companies or people that work in this space of purpose driven mission driven whatever did so because of a historic lack of trust in corporations <laughs> but the funny thing is like branding's all about totally. building trust right so and with media becoming a questionable source of information these days with, like, people not knowing which outlets to trust and then with influencers, like, we already talked on that. What they are kind of spreading a lot of information, but, like, most of it probably has not been verified or, you know, checked or fact-checked or anything like that. So, it almost makes you think, like, maybe... Moving forward, even though corporations were the ones you couldn't trust, moving forward, maybe brands might be the only trusted source of information you're going to get. So pushing more towards these authentic, vulnerable, transparent, you know, believable kind of strategic communications might position brands to be as weird as it sounds like the ethical voice of society.
0: Yeah. No, this is what's happening. And these are news articles that I've already seen, like looking, there are, you know, people are looking to companies as like a steady hand to say, you know, hey, this is like, this is what we're going to stand behind. This is what we're clear on. This is what we're advocating for, like a sense of calm in the storm. And they will continue to look to companies to be that direction, that director, that force in our society. And I think you're right. I think it'll be more now than it has been before, because for all the things that you just stated, like all the reasons you've stated, it's harder to find those institutions. There's been such a breakdown in trust. It's like, who can we trust? And so certainly people in this brands and companies in this sustainability space have a lot of goodwill already built. And my hope is that we just continue to really build more of it through, like I said, too, I think that arc that I was talking about can really go a long way as companies think about how they
1: communicate. and a great example, too, is the the climate collaborative that a bunch of brands got together and said, well, well, if we can't trust the government to do something about this climate change problem, then we'll do something about it. And I think you know, more and more of that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff is happening to where if we wanna get things done, You know, as much as you can criticize capitalism and commerce and corporations and all that, if you want to get something done, like businesses are better at getting stuff done than the government or individual people, right? They're
0: closer to consumers.
1: I'm imagine we could kind of continue talking on this tangent or in other tangents that we were on for a long time, but looking at the clock, I guess we better wrap up. So.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's been so much fun, Gage. Thank you. Yeah.
1: And I appreciate you coming on the show and for bringing everything you do to this community and all your wisdom and history in this industry, I think it's really valuable. And then, like you said, it's, it's fun to see like what you were talking about, about going away for a little while getting your hands dirty, launching your own business, building your own brand, but then coming back into this space refreshed and ready to move forward in the future. So, it's also kind of a nice reminder to people that like career journeys don't always have to be continuous or even a straight line. Just kind of listen to your body, like go where you need to go and just know that you're going to bring all of yourself to wherever you go next. And that kind of unique recipe of experience is going to help you stand out or help the industry move forward. So anyway, thanks for doing everything you do. And thanks for spending some time Mm -hmm. chatting with us on the show. Thank
0: you so much.
1: Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up or review and share it with your colleagues. As an ever evolving show we also love feedback so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com business can be a powerful force for good is your brand living up to its full potential go to evolvecpg.com to learn about our new impact workshop exponential good over six weeks we'll be thinking bigger getting relevant spreading throughout going exponential, working backwards, and making it real so you can walk away with a clear vision and a detailed action plan for scaling your brand's positive impact exponentially. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Molly and the Kindship Group, go to kindshipgroup.com.